This is the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan, where we interview local real estate investors and professionals to go over tips, tricks, and investing strategies to help you learn about the business and to enable you to achieve your financial goals. And now, welcome to the show. Hey, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. Today, we'll be talking to Brad Smotherman. Brad is a real estate investor and host of the top 100 business podcast, Investor Creator. He currently owns a seven-figure per year real estate investing business and has invested in over 14 states. Today, Brad will talk about subject two wraps and will walk us through his entire acquisition funnel. By listening to this episode and following his steps, you should be able to acquire properties with this strategy from anywhere in the country. Enjoy. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Go ahead and introduce yourself and let everyone know who you are and how you even got into real estate investing. My name is Brad Smotherman, and I'm a local real estate investor based out of Nashville, Tennessee. Um, I got in, in real estate at a young age. I was 17 years old whenever I decided to get my real estate license, got my license at 18, and that was in 2005. So I retired my license to do investment and kind of the, the evolution of my business. I started off in real estate investing doing what we call subject to wraps. I would buy a house with basically owner financing and I would sell it with owner financing. So I would create all of these wrap notes. So I did that. I built up my cash. I started doing uh, fix and flips, the HGTV style, you know, gut down, reframe it, Joanna Gaines, all of that. Uh, realized I don't really have the attention span, nor is there the profit in that, that that I was making with my notes and went back into the note game. So most of our business now is buying and selling with owner financing. We do still do some some minor fix and flips, but that's uh, kind of what my business has has turned into. And you know, we're out there having a lot of fun. I, I bought at this point in 16 states. So uh, we've we've done a lot of investing. Awesome. You know, I think you're the first person to be on my show that actually does subject to wraps. Do you want to explain what that is? Yeah, I, I certainly can. So I think the first thing that we should start with is what is subject to. And uh, subject to doesn't mean a contingency. So a lot of people think, well, a subject to deal is, well, the, the deal is subject to an inspection or it's subject to financing. No. So a subject to transaction, and, and to tell you the history of this, these, these transactions became super, super popular when interest rates got to like 15, 16, 18% because it, the real estate market was very difficult, but all these people selling houses had like six, seven, well, not six and seven, or like nine, 10 and 12% interest rates. So uh, the preferable way to sell real estate at the time was to leave a loan in place and transfer title subject to that lien. So all subject to really means is that we're leaving a lien in place, whether that lien is a mortgage, so a bank loan, whether that lien is a judgment or a tax lien, whatever that is, and we're taking title subject to that lien. So uh, to put numbers to a deal, let's say a house is worth half a million, they owe 350000 on them, and um, we leave their $1,000 loan in place and we take title subject to that lien. So then with my model, we'll take and we'll sell that house with owner financing. So we'll get down payment, we'll get cash flow, and we'll get a note. So that, that's basic, and that's a really bird's eye view of subject two, but, but in a nutshell, that's a subject two route. Okay, so to clarify, subject two is basically someone owns a house, and they already have a mortgage on it, or some kind of lien, like you said. And Correct. you come in there, and you say, we're going to buy your property subject two, which means that you're just going to take over their mortgage payment. Do you pay them extra money on top of that, or do you just take over their mortgage, and they kind of walk away from the house? Well, it depends on the deal. I mean, there are certainly transactions where uh, we pay sellers cash at closing, and, and that's uh, more, much more normal now because everybody has an equity position. But in 2010, when I started, nobody had equity. 
So in 2010, it was very common for us to just get the deed, get the cash. Now, because everybody has equity, then it's pretty common for us to, to pay some cash at closing. And so the wrap is that you bought it, you put some money, like a down payment, and you have a interest payment to the to the bank. So the wrap is when you get Correct. a buyer in and they pay a higher down payment than what you paid and their payment to you is higher than what you have to pay to the bank. That's absolutely right. So um, we just did a transaction. This is kind of a bread and butter transaction for us. It's a little bit higher dollar for the middle Tennessee area, but uh, we had a transaction come in um, and our top five biggest motivators are people that are pre foreclosure behind on payments. They have inherited property that they don't want. They are tired landlords. They're going through a divorce or there's a health and safety issue. And I say uh, safety issue because we have bought houses from people that were being abused. So in this transaction, the, the guy was two payments behind. He owed $250,000. I'm giving him $10,000 walk away money at closing. So I'm in the deal at $250,000. I'm going to sell the house with owner financing at 340,000 with probably a 20 or a $25,000 down payment. So just for easy numbers, we'll say 20,000 down. So I'd get $10,000 in, in cash today, you know, not that uncommon or that atypical for a wholesale transaction, but I'm getting $10,000 in cash today. I'm getting uh, a, a wrap note of 320,000 that is wrapped around a $240,000 underlying. So in that transaction, I've got what 80,000 in note equity that would throw off a rate of return. So, you know, the cash flow on that transaction, usually my wraps will, will net on the equity side somewhere around 15%. So we may make on that transaction a thousand dollars a month interest. Nice. I was wondering, how do you keep track of all of this? Because you are still uh, liable for that payment to the bank, right? It depends. The way that we, we do it and the way that we teach it, we don't guarantee payments. So, and in most circumstances, we're putting our buyer in place before we close because we don't want to originate. So there's a whole, whole other structure to that. But in general, to answer your question, um, we use a software called Money Lender Pro, which is actually a fairly cheap software. I think it's like $250 one-time fee. And it allows you to statements, the monthly mortgage statements, the 1098s, allows us to track the amortization on the underlying and the wrap. So there, it has a lot of functionality that's really good. Gotcha. So your end buyer will give you a check every month and then the software Moneylender Pro knows to accept that money and then also tracks that you're making that same payment to the bank. Correct. And, and, and we do accept paper checks, you know, which we prefer to be cashier's checks or money orders, but then we will make the underlying payments. Okay, Correct. Good. So basically you have a software to keep track of all your stuff. A hundred percent. But I will say that that owning paper is a lot easier than owning rentals. So, you know, we don't have vacancy, we don't have repairs. So if they, somebody calls us and says, well, my HVAC went out, it's like, well, sorry to hear that Mr. Buyer, but you own the house. So, you know, if I own the house, I don't call Bank of America. Whenever my HVAC goes out, I'll call the HVAC person. So it's kind of the same thing here. And so who are your buyers? Are you putting this property on MLS and finding a retail buyer? So generally we're marketing through Facebook and Craigslist. So our, our buyers are someone that they're one of two people, either they have a credit score issue in general um, that disallows them from traditional bank financing, or they have a, they're self-employed and they have a difficult time with banks. Okay. Now there are outliers in that. I have had people that just are like really hell bent on not getting traditional bank finance and they can absolutely qualify for bank financing. I've had people that could, basically pay the house off in cash, but they don't want to because 
uh, those investments are in stock or other real estate and, and they don't want to touch it. So um, there's certainly under outliers as far as that goes. But when it comes down to it, most of, of the people that we sell to are going to fall in those two categories. Okay. So I guess you're my asking is you're basically wholesaling these homes or are you actually doing any renovations to the property before you transfer it to a new buyer? No. And it's kind of funny. It's a big joke for us that uh, like who can sell the worst house. So I, I'm in a group that we meet, I guess two or three times a year. And uh, these are investors across the country that, that do, uh, they do a lot of different stuff. I mean, some wholesale and some do uh, some retail stuff, but you know, the vast majority of us do owner financing. And um, I actually had one property where we, so basically we sell everything as is. So to the point that if the grass needs cut, somebody better go cut the grass because we're selling it as is where it is. Okay. Uh, I actually had one transaction where uh, we bought this house and it was just a total junker there. It had been a roof leak for like two years. So you can imagine like water will destroy a house You know, over time. You give enough time and water will destroy a house. Uh, but the roof leak was so bad that in uh, our marketing, we said, you know, look, the front door is unlocked. The house is vacant. If, if it's rain today, though, you'll want to take your umbrella inside the house because you're going to need it. Um, but we sold the house, you know, owner financing. I, I remember, and I don't know the numbers for last month. I know in January, it was somewhere around uh, 31% of mortgage applications got denied. So with that, if you take the standard mortgage market, if you think that 31% of people that want to buy a house can't, then you look at every two houses that are selling right now there could be a third if they could get the financing. So it's a big, big market. What kind of terms do you usually give for your new buyer? Like what kind of spread do you look for uh, between the payment that you owe the bank and the payment that you're going to request from this new person? Yeah. So, I mean, the minimum profit on it that I, I will personally take is 25,000 and that's the, the difference in the purchase price and the sales price. So um, with that, and, and that's pretty rare. I mean, our average note somewhere in the $45,000 range, but um, we do straight amortized loans for our buyers. So 30 year notes are fine with us. So if they want to do a 15 or 20 year note, then they certainly can, but almost everybody goes with a 30 year note. We do want a reasonable down payment. So our average down payment is 25,000. Um, and it comes down to, we want to get in the game. So th these are non-qualifying people. And so they are higher risk. And with that, there needs to be higher rewards. So our average interest rate, 7.9%. And depending on the transaction, we may want to do a rising interest rate. Uh, but on a lot of them, we fix the rate. But we don't do balloons and we don't do prepayment penalties. So in most of these situations, we don't want the cash. We don't want the note to cash out. We want the payment. And we don't want balloons because we don't want to put someone in a situation where uh, they are going to default because if you start putting balloons and notes, you're, you're putting them in a situation where you're, they're likely to default. We don't want that. I see. So your main point is you want the cash flow from these notes. Yeah. And there's certainly, again, outliers on that. So it's like for every rule, there's almost always an exception. In, in a vast majority of our transactions, the, the rate of return that we're getting on the note equity is so high that to get the cash back, we would have to go back to work and put that money out at a lower rate of return than what the note's getting. So in that situation, it's like, number one, why do I want to go back to work to put that money to work? And then secondly, to do it at a lower rate of return. So, and, and probably 85 to 90% of our transactions, we, we want the note to remain. That's funny. So like, I didn't understand this concept a few years ago, but banks have that prepayment penalty because they don't want the cash. They want that money working for them. Absolutely. Yeah. So do you guys actually transfer title between your seller and yourselves and then from yourselves to the buyer or you kind of just 
matching one to one and getting a slice in between? Yeah. So in a perfect environment, our seller will close with our buyer. So, you know, we'll have a contract with our seller. We'll have a contract with our buyer and let them close together. Um, and then there, there's an assignment of note and deed of trust or mortgage, depending on the state that you're in, that allows us the profit in that transaction. Awesome. Are there any downsides to your strategy? Yeah, there's certainly downsides. I mean, um, Nashville has been on a, a rocket ship when it comes to values the past 20 years. So, you know, somebody that, that did our strategy in you know, the 1970s would have lost out on, on a, a, a ton of appreciation. I mean, there have literally been houses that uh, friends of mine's fathers have owned and they bought it for maybe $3,000 in the 70s and sold it for half a million dollars and the house got torn down. You have that kind of stuff happening. So the, the bad part about notes is that you forego appreciation to have an asset that does not have vacancy and repair. What I really like about notes is that your income is stated. And what that means is the notes have a, a principal interest amount, so we can't guarantee taxes and insurance. You know, the escrow payment is outside of us, uh, but a note is a principal interest amount. So um, with that, we know what our principal interest amount is every month that comes in. And we know, unless we have a default, what that, that income is going to be every month, okay? But we don't have vacancy come out of that. We don't have repair come out of that. But the bad part about notes is first position liens are depreciating assets. Whereas um, if you have a rental, they generally appreciate, but you know you basically pay for it in vacancy and repair. That's right. So, I mean, for notes, you also don't get the tax benefits, like you were saying, right? No depreciation on that property. Correct. But the way that I look at depreciation, I mean, most people have rentals for a certain amount of time and then they sell it. So you have depreciation recapture. You know, uh, and in that case, I mean, the depreciation is a moot point. So you're mostly investing in Nashville, Tennessee. Is that correct? Yeah, mostly I would say in, in middle and East Tennessee. How did you get connected to these other states that you said you were investing in as well? You know, um, it, it kind of happened just by happenstance. So I started getting some down payments that were free and clear houses. And those houses would be in different states. So that happened first. And then as I became more and more comfortable with different states, I, I partnered with a good, good friend of mine in Pittsburgh. And we bought some houses together. I've partnered with a buddy of mine, Kaz in Dallas and we bought some houses together and then we just kind of branched out. So I actually market online to, I believe, believe it's 126 different metros. From my perspective now, you know, we're equity buyers and I don't care where property is if there's equity and we're in a position that um, we're comfortable. So almost anything works at a price. I never understood investors that say, well, I don't buy two bedroom houses. And it's like, okay, well, what if I had one worth a hundred grand and I'd sell it to you for a dollar, right? All day. So, you know, yeah, right. So it's like, don't brush the, the broad brushstrokes of always and never. It, it is always nice when a transaction is close to home, I yep. will say. Absolutely. Can you talk about how you're finding your deals in the first place? Yeah, sure. So it's kind of funny. Um, I think that marketing is always... Well, always is a big word. It's generally you have these these really big who moved my cheese moments. So whenever I started in 2010, I would put out 25 bandit signs. So for those of you who don't know what a bandit sign is, it's those really tacky we buy houses signs that you see on the, the corners of intersections. And I would put out 25 signs and get 18 calls. Well, you know, I wasn't very good on the phone. I couldn't spot a deal. It was a really tough market when it comes to buying equity because every everybody was in, in a depressed real estate market. So um, it was really tough to, to buy, but we had all this lead flow. Well, 
there was a time when I got really good at dealing with those, those kinds of transactions. And as the market increased, as far as the, the pricing in all these markets nationally, I, I began to really not like the seller's market that we were in. You know, I, I enjoyed buying in a buyer's market. Well, then we, we started doing a lot of direct mail. So I started off doing 15,000 pieces a month and it got to where we were sending almost 70,000 pieces a month wow. to get the same net lead flow as we were with 15,000, maybe 24 to 36 months earlier. So, um, and it was, it was so much mail to the point that we bought a printer. It was like close to a hundred thousand dollar printer so that we could do the mail in house. And uh, it got to where we had two people on the phone full time. We had a halftime person on the phone just to deal with lead inflow from all these yellow letters. And it's just like, this is crazy, man. Like we're getting, you know, I don't know, like, hundreds and hundreds of phone calls a week just to, to do the same lead flow that 15,000 pieces of mail produced, you know, uh, 24 to 36 months earlier. So then I moved to Google ads. So AdWords, um, which has been really good the past two years, but I'm, I'm beginning to see it kind of fizzle out too. And I'm kind of surprised by that. I think part of it is uh, open door and new Western and Zillow. They're getting into uh, the purchase side of real estate, which I don't think that they're going to be able to, um, to, to do well long-term, they just have so much capital behind them that they're going to be able to withstand it for five or six or seven years. But, um, but they're players in the market now. So it's driving lead costs and, um, the, the average investor can't go toe to toe, toe to toe with open door. Who's paying, you know, roughly 90% of value. So it's becoming a tougher market, but uh, all that to say, it, it's kind of been a, a who moved my cheese moment a few times in my career where bandit signs got to where they didn't work. And then mail got to where it didn't work. And now AdWords is getting difficult. I think the new uh, direct mail is going to be the ringless voicemail as long as the States allow it. And I don't know how long that's going to be. I'm hearing some talk about, um, you know, different attorney generals not liking this, you know, and the ringless voicemail for those of you who don't know is uh, if you haven't received one, your phone rings like once and then you get a voicemail from that number. So we can drop a voicemail in a very, very targeted list um, in their cell phone saying, hey, I'm buying houses in your area sort of thing. So uh, we're in the process of testing that out now. I know some people in San Diego that are doing that method very successfully. Yeah, yeah. 70,000 letters per month is pretty ridiculous. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it was a lot of mail, man. It was a lot of mail. That's it was so much mail. fun. Uh, you know, we, we had the printer going and, um, it was so much fun to see all these. I, I basically looked at them as lottery tickets because it's like, if you have 70,000 lottery tickets, you're going to hit the lottery. It's yeah. just the question of how much, um, but it, it just became so intrusive in every way. It was, it was a really difficult way and people are still mailing. I mean, I, I know people, I've got friends of mine across the country that invest and they're doing well with, with postcards, but they're sending like 60 or, you know, some of them a hundred thousand per month. And, they have, a, I call it a wide funnel, you know, so you, your, your calls to your contracts ratio is just a really uh, big ratio, right? So I call that a wide funnel versus uh, Google AdWords. At one point, we were doing one transaction for every 12 leads, so which is really efficient. You know, it's a very efficient funnel. So um, yeah, I mean, direct mail, it was a lot of mail, but we had a lot of fun with it. So do you guys not do direct mail anymore? Did you stop? I, ha I haven't done direct mail in probably a year. I mean, I'm sure Google AdWords is cheaper, right? Well, it, it was roughly the same cost per contract. So what I'm really concerned about it is not cost per lead, it's cost per contract, which is, again, the bottom of that funnel. 
but um, it, it's beginning to increase because my cost per lead across markets has doubled probably in the past four or five months. And was that for all those 14 different states that you were marketing towards? No. So whenever you, you market nationally, you can see like there's little anomalies in the market. So if you take a bell curve, you know, you have your average, um, you're always going to have the tail of the bell curve, you know, some of which work really, really well and some of which don't work at all, regardless of what you do. So um, we, we try to hit the tail markets, you know, whenever we're doing um, national marketing. So it may be that we're in a, a major 100 metro, but for whatever reason, there's just not many bigger players there or they have lower ad budgets or maybe the demographics older. So uh, there's not a lot of younger people doing AdWords yet or whatever that is like who knows, but we, we do find that across some markets that there are some markets that perform far, far better than others. What I meant was, were you sending, were you sending 70,000 male pieces to just Nashville or was that throughout the United States? No, that was multiple states. Okay. So, I mean, that was Nashville. We were doing some in Kentucky, Florida. Um, it, it was kind of across the board. And do you remember what was your cost per contract? On average, right now, uh, let's probably talk about, about before and maybe now. Yeah, so um, I would say that across my career, it's increased from a thousand to fifteen hundred dollars to, you know, roughly two thousand at this point. Do you want to hear a scary story? I'd love to hear one. I think here in the Bay Area, the average is eighteen thousand per contract. Yeah, and I was going to say, you know, the Bay Area is just a different. It's it's an anomaly, but you guys have flips that. Uh, you know, where our average flip is somewhere around $55,000 now, um, you know, $55,000 to you guys is, is not a good flip at all. You know, I'd say the average is, you know, two, three, 400 grand. I mean, I, I have no idea, but, you know, just guessing it has to be far, far more. Yeah, that's, that's, that's true. <laughs> you know, so if you look at it as a return on investment, investment, I mean, you, you should absolutely 10 extra marketing dollar and that's at a minimum. I mean, our best month, we had a 78 times return on our marketing dollar. Wow. All right. So let's go over to my next question. Let's imagine you're starting over from scratch. What do you do to get to where you are today? You know, that, that's a great question. I think that um, you really have to decide what you want. So some people really love rentals and that's great. You know, some people like notes, some people like flipping, they like construction, they want to get their hands dirty and all that. I think first you have to decide what your niche is and then you need a mentor. You know, so I think that mentors drastically uh, cut your learning curve, number one, and they're going to save you a lot of money and time. You know, so uh, I was lucky that I had really good mentors early on who taught me the business. I certainly wouldn't have figured this out on my own. So finding a mentor and um, keeping the end game in mind. So a lot of people, I think, have a difficult time starting because they, they don't understand that there's a learning curve involved. So with with being a good real estate investor, you can make as much as a, any type of neurosurgeon or high powered attorney, you know, whatever that is, right? Really, really high level stuff. But you have to realize that those people went to school for like 10 years to be skillful. It doesn't take 10 years in real estate, but there is a learning curve. So, you know, so many people uh, discount that it's not going to be easy to start. And I think part of that is what they see on TV or what they hear from these national gurus that don't know what they're talking about. But, um, you know, finding your niche, find your mentor, have the end game in mind, because it's the end game in mind and having that vision that's going to get you through that learning curve when times are tough. Yeah, that's amazing. I feel the exact same sentiment for what you just said. I personally go through a similar issue where I know there's so many different strategies in real estate and they all look great. So how did you decide that doing 
notes and subject to wraps was your niche in the real estate investing field? Well, I mean, part of it was just by default because when I started, I, I didn't have any money to invest anyway. So, you know, my first transaction, whenever it closed, I had like $300 in the bank and it was a $20,000 net down payment. And uh, so I, that's how I started because I had to. Um, then when I got a little bit of money, I started doing the fix and flips and the rehabs and all of that. And because I thought that that's just what you did. So for a while, I had almost a disdain for these people that would do wraps and, and all of this because you really can do the, these deals with little to no money. But you, it's a very skilled sort of thing because you have to understand deal structure and negotiation to get to the right deal structure that you want at a very high level. So from there, I started doing my fix and flips and I realized I really didn't like that. And so it came to a point where it was the end of, of the year and I was looking at my best transactions and like 80% of them were note deals because they were easy to buy. They were really easy to sell. They were high profit. And, and I had this cash flow coming in, you know, so you build up enough notes and it, it becomes kind of fun because, uh, you start getting getting calls from title companies saying, Hey, Brad, I noticed that you have a lien on this property. We need a payoff. And that's a pretty good call to get, you know, um, and looking at the ROI on the notes, there's no way that I could take the cash and put it into stock or put it into multifamily or storage or whatever, mobile home parks. I've looked at it all. There's nothing that I can do with the cash to, to get a higher ROI than what I'm doing. The only thing that I'll say is I'll look at bigger assets whenever it's just like, it's just too much cash. Right. Mm -hmm. So um, I've got a good friend of mine that I talked to today. Uh, he's adding $2,000 per month in, in positive cash flow to his business and notes. I mean, two grand a month that that adds up after a while. You know? That's right. So it goes to show you the possibility in the business. Yeah. I mean, I feel the same way. I used to do a lot of flips, but the problem with flips is you're only as good as your last flip. It's not consistent. It's all transactional. Yeah. You're only as good as your last flip. And um, everybody touts real estate as being getting out of the rat, rat race and it should be, and it is, and it can be, but if you're not doing passive cash flow, you're, you're not getting out of anything, mm -hmm. you know? And so, um, with that, the, the reason that I looked at the flips and said, this is not the, the direction that I want to go long-term is a few things. I mean, number one, um, there's about a 30% difference in profit off the top between taking a note transaction to retail. So to put numbers to it, like let's say a house is worth half a million dollars on the retail market. So that's the standard realtor MLS market. Well, there's a, an entire different market when you take it to owner financing. So there's a pool of buyers that need owner financing and the supply demand curve is so different than the retail real estate market that we can drive price up. So in general, I can drive price up 10 to 15% off of the retail market to um, an owner finance market. So that's, we'll just say 10% there. Then I don't have real estate commissions. So that's 6%. I don't have all this interest and in, in carrying costs, property taxes and insurance while the property sells. So, you know, that's some more. Um, it, it's just, it, it makes a big difference in the profit at the end of the day. That's right. That's right. Do you think someone could try this in the Bay Area? It seems like a pretty rough strategy to, to do here. You know, as long as there's motivated sellers, then there's a way to do anything. So if, I, I guess the question is, are there motivated sellers in the Bay Area? The answer is yes, but it's very hard to find them. 
Yeah. And I mean, the, the thing is, I mean, it's big, big reward, big risk. So, I mean, I can see $18,000 in marketing to, to get to two or $300,000 net deals. And so if someone is able to spend that in marketing and get in front of a seller that's motivated, then they can certainly take that deal, turn it into a, uh, a, a note transaction, a wrap transaction, because for a few reasons that actually benefit your seller. Um, if someone's behind on payments, it's absolutely to their benefit that we take that property subject to. From a credit score perspective, it's going to help them that at closing the mortgage is caught up and then those payments are made on time versus paying the mortgage off whenever those payments are behind. So it, it's absolutely to their benefit. And then if, if they don't need to, to buy a house in any certain amount of time or you know, whatever their situation might be, um, taking it to an owner finance market where that financing remains in place for a longer period of time than if we just bought it subject to and retailed out, you know, would certainly be a double strategy. But it has to be negotiated well with the idea of deal structure in mind. Got it. Cool. Very valuable stuff. So besides you doing subject to wraps and notes, what else are you doing? Well, um, being a father of two and a husband, and I hope a good one, uh, you'll have to ask my wife about that. I a think a great good one. one. Yeah. You know, uh, doing the family thing is super important to me. And, and that's another reason I like notes is doing transactions in multiple states. I can't imagine having rental houses all over the place, but we can service notes pretty efficiently. You know, so if you take 200 notes, one person can do that fairly part-time. Um, 200 rentals, though, across 16 states. Uh, that's going to be a, a bit more of a, of a problem. So, um, but I always think, you know, at the end of the day, I don't want my wife to step into something, God forbid, if something happens to me where um, she has to manage a bunch of rentals or she has to, you know, God forbid, step into a, a $2 million a year wholesaling company, having never bought an investment property. Like that's probably not going to work well. Right. Uh, but I do think that she could service notes. I think that she could figure that out and, you know, be in a pretty decent position. And, and I have life insurance and that's fine. But, you know, building the legacy, um, I, I want to build a cash flow legacy and, and notes is my way to do that. Awesome. And I noticed you remember you said that you have properties out of state. Um, so how, how do you have someone acquiring the property? Do you have like an acquisitions manager in every state that you purchase in? No. So we'll just, um, we negotiate over the phone. So we'll have a two-part phone call. The first is is basically gathering the basic information and and the, we're getting the information to determine motivation one of two ways, either motivation in price or motivation in circumstance. So you know, let's say again, house is worth half a million dollars. If someone calls and says, well, I just want $300,000 for this house, that's motivation and price. We don't know their motivation, but they're willing to sell at a discount. Uh, if someone says, well, I, it's worth 500,000, I want 500,000, but I'm getting foreclosed on in 10 days. Well, that's should be motivation and circumstance. So we'll set both of those appointments. And then the second phone call is generally with me. So I'll get on the phone and then we're going into a deeper script talking about the scope of repairs and everything that we need to know to buy that property. We'll just send the, the contract over DocuSign. So we'll get it approved. And at that point, the agreement is contingent on inspections. So we'll have uh, a couple broker price opinions done. So we'll have brokers give us opinions on the price. And that, that's usually about $150 a piece. Uh, we'll have a home inspection done. If it's something that we're going to personally put cash in, um, and if the broker price opinions are not like clear, so there's not a consensus between the two, and like let's say one of them's half a million and one of them's three hundred thousand, then we'll we'll go step two and get an appraisal to really nail down value. So at that point, um, we're going to have enough information from qualified professionals in that area 
that uh, is far beyond what I personally have whenever I buy local. So how big is your current team size? Yeah, so I have a a full-time acquisition person, a part-time disposition person, me, uh, a project manager who has a a couple of full-time employees, and uh, I had a secretary. I need to get another one. So uh, that's kind of the team right now. We're pretty lean. Your project manager is more like your GC for any rehab projects you need? Correct, yes. So do you actually handle the phone calls yourself as well? Generally not. I have a VA that does it, but... if, if somebody's behind or, you know, I, I'm, I'm really um, strict on getting to the leads within a, a reasonable amount of time. And I mean like three minutes, because if someone's putting an ad on, on AdWords, if they go to our website uh, and they don't get a phone call back quickly, then they're going to other websites. So, I mean, I'm, I'm really strict on, on getting to people really quickly. So if we're behind, I, I know my VA's on the phone, then, then I'll jump on the phone. I don't mind that. Is your VA part of that? two-man group that you were talking about? No, that, that's that's a, an, another person. So you just have one VA handling most of the phone calls or do you have like a team of people who are doing that for you? No, it's just it's just one. It's okay. just one. So, I mean, we may have, I mean, a really crazy day would be above 10 leads. Um, I mean, we're, we're kind of lean on the lead side because again, you know, historically 12 leads is a transaction. So, you know, if we have eight leads that day, then then we've almost bought a house. That's you know, good. Just speaking. Yeah, yeah. You know, but we're because we cast a wide net on AdWords, we can go with really um, motivating keywords. So things like sell my house fast, sell my house today, for sale, foreclosure sale, you know, stuff like that. So um, if we can target that, um, those keywords across a a wider net, then we're going to have fewer leads, but we'll be able to pay less for it and only go after the really motivated keywords. So, yeah, it, it makes a difference as far as our conversions and all that. And is your VA uh, from the States or is it someone from like the Philippines or Jamaica? Yeah, it's a Philippine VA. I think she's like six bucks an hour and then I'll bonus her a hundred bucks on each transaction. Nice. So I I think in her terms, she does pretty well and I'm I'm happy to do that. I really, I think I want to buy her a house. It's like, let's just meet our goals this year. And I don't know how much a house is there, but I just think that'd be super cool. Like, hey, let's buy the VA a house. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. That's amazing. So kind of, I guess, walk me through your acquisition process one more time in full length. So you send out some kind of advertisement, whether it be direct mail or Google AdWords, then they go to your website or they call the phone number on your direct mail letter. That phone number goes to your VA in the Philippines, who hopefully is awake when you guys are uh, working on this stuff. Sort of. So we, we do the marketing and the the, all the marketing that we've done really the past 12 months has been um, internet based. So people are, we, we don't want phone calls. We want the form filled out and we, we have conversion rate experts that have worked on the web page to, to get the conversion rate to where it's to a point And the flow of the website is to a point that it makes it really easy to know what's next. I think that's a big problem with real estate investors. It's like, nobody cares about your family. Nobody cares about your company. It's like, make it really easy to take that next step, right? So uh, the lead comes in, it's on a form, it's an unbounce um, platform, which I'm sure your Silicon Valley uh, people will know about. And so the, the lead comes in and it's emailed to me and it's emailed to the VA. So uh, if it's after hours for the VA, then either I'll take it or I'll send it to my acquisition person that's local here to Nashville and, and they'll get it. Okay. So I'm, that the call is being made. We have the, the one part script 
that happens where we're asking basically five questions um, to go over it real quick. You know, basically, and this is paraphrasing, but basically tell me about the house. What's the repairs? How soon do you want to close? Uh, is there a mortgage and is it current? And how much are you wanting to walk away with after the mortgage is taken care of? Okay. So like, that's a big five questions. And at the end of that, we're making a decision on, do we want to set the next appointment? Whether if that's a local deal, it's a local deal. If, if not, it's the second part phone call. So from there on the second part phone call, um, I guess I'll talk about this two ways. So virtually on the second part phone call, we're deciding whether to, to go along with what they want. And one of my things uh, that I'm really strict on also is we never make an offer. Okay. So that's for a couple of reasons. Number one, I think that people uh, run away from things that chase them. So if I go to a house and, and I'm saying, well, I'm the best real estate investor. Here's my company credentials. Uh, I'll give you the most money and I'll close on the date of your choice. And if you want to leave the place erect then that's fine. And all that, it's like, it feels like I'm, I'm almost being too easy. Right. So I do believe in rapport, but I think that people spend too much on rapport. So um, whenever we go to the house, our, our job is to get the contract in, in one swing. So it's like, it's more of a pitch than sales. So it's like, you know, one time at bat, we get one swing or we're out. Right. So we're going to the house. We're going to create a little bit of rapport. We're going to ask some questions that puts them in an emotional state that allows us to uh, negotiate well. We're going to be 100% upfront and honest with, you know, here's the sales prices. Here's your tax record. This is what we think we can sell the house for. Uh, here's your repair costs the way that we see it. And, you know, what do you need to walk away with? But we never give a price. Um, we found that it's pretty difficult to get run out of a house for lowballing if you never give a price. Um, and a lot of times, uh, their price is lower than your price. And so there have been multiple times in my career where um, someone will give me just a ridiculously low price. And it's like, well, no, we're going to pay you a little bit more than that because my number was higher than theirs. And I think that's okay. Um, so from there, once we have the price, we're going to switch it to terms. So we negotiate price first, then terms. So a lot of people try to uh, kind of intertwine it. You know, so a lot of investors, they say, well, Here's option one, here's option two, here's option three. I think that's a terrible idea. If we have the price that they need and then we hammer it down, we say, so if I can give you that price then you'll sell me the house and they say yes. And then we say, okay, well, I can give you that price if we do it like this. So we're giving them their price if they agree to our terms and price is a function of terms. So we can absolutely pay a million dollars for a million dollar house, but the terms may be, you know, $3,000 per month until paid at 0%. And we do those kinds of deals all the time. So if you're a finance guy, you understand present value. You understand that the present value of that is significantly lower than the purchase price. But all that to say, um, when you go to a house, I, I really believe spend a little bit of time on rapport, ask the questions that you need to ask, give them the facts that they need to uh, make a good decision, ask them what they're hoping to walk away with. So what's their walk away money? And then you can switch that from price to terms, which for us would be subject to or buying with owner financing or whatever that is for you. Cool. And you try to get them signed that very first meeting. Well, they don't sign anything. They approve the form or they endorse it or they give us the, their John Hancock on the agreement. So, and again, that's part of 
for negotiation strategy is we don't say contract, sign a contract. That just feels awful to people. Mm-hmm. Do they approve the agreement, endorse the form? People like agreements is one thing that I've found. Yeah, I mean, honestly, it sounds like you can do this strategy anywhere. You don't have to be in Nashville or in any state, right? Well, I think that you can do it anywhere that there's housing. So if housing ceases to exist, I, I don't know what I'll do. But, you know, for me, real estate is is a means to an end. So I'm not in love with houses. I'm not in love with land or anything like that. I'm certainly not in love with trailers or mobile homes. But, um, you know, it's an asset class where we can easily get financing. Uh, many times people are going through life circumstances where um, they, they need to sell the property. And selling the property quickly is secondary to getting every drop of equity out of the transaction. So to tell you a quick story, um, this one's kind of funny and I know what you're thinking. It's like, Brad, I can't believe you would have a funny story, but uh, I had a transaction. This was actually a lady. It was one of, one of the most sad transactions I've ever had. The lady, she showed me the house and I go through the script. So we, and I actually had a mentee with me at the time. So she was learning the business and she, this was the first appointment that she'd ever gone on with me. And she's gone on to do wonderful things, but we go to the house. I spend a little bit of time on rapport. I ask my questions. I go through the facts and I asked what the walkaway money is. And she said, uh, so to put numbers to it, I think there's 160 owed. Uh, she wanted 12,000 to, to walk away. It needed basically $5,000 in repairs, so no repairs. And it was worth, I thought, $230,000. And I'm like, so then we say, well, I can do your 12,000 if we can do it another way. We need to take it subject to the loan remains in your name. It's gonna be on your credit report until we pay it off. You know, and this is how it works. So. She does the agreement. And one of the things that she said whenever we were uh, getting the agreement approved was she said, well, I'll sell it to you, but I don't want my son to know that you're selling, that you're buying the house. I said, okay. And I'd already noticed that there were holes in the wall about the size of a fist at about shoulder length, right? Throughout the house. I said, well, tell me about that. She said, well, um, he has an anger problem as you've seen. And and I'm moving where this is a, three bedroom house. I'm moving to a two bedroom house. I'm like, okay, well, and at that point I understood she wasn't going to tell him and it was going to be our problem. And that that's fine. I'm a hundred percent fine with doing that. Um, but it was so funny to me because the last thing that we do is we get pictures. It's like, well, do you mind if we get some pictures? And she said, well, I have a document that has pictures in it that I think maybe you'll want. And I said, well, okay, what is it? And she hands me an appraisal that's roughly 16 months old, right? And it shows me the house is like 20% bigger than what I thought it was per the, the tax record. So that's the first time that I've ever, ever had someone give me a, an appraisal that shows me the equity position that they just gave to me. And they know it. So a lot of people think that we're in this business and people don't understand what the value is or, you know, we're who doing old people, which is something I hate. Um, people know the value you know, and the, the value and getting every drop of equity from the transaction secondary to getting the deal done because of those life circumstances. And with that, you know, yeah, I think real estate's a great thing. And I think you can pretty much do it anywhere as long as they're housing. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for all that information. So how can people get in contact with you? Yeah. I love when people reach out. There's a few ways that you can get in touch with me. So the first is if you're so inclined, you can add me as a friend on Facebook it's Brad Smotherman. It's also bradsmotherman.com. And for the, the podcast lovers out there, I have a podcast investor creator with Brad Smotherman on iTunes. Awesome. And by the way, you're talking about how you have students and whatnot. Is there ways that people can learn more about 
note investing by going on your website? We have a little bit about note investing on the website. You know, it's something that uh, we, we keep the, the proprietary stuff that we do pretty close to us and to the mentees. But if somebody's interested in, in private uh, learning with me, then just reach out and I'm happy to talk to them. Awesome. Is there anything else you'd like to say before we end the show today? You know, first, I want to thank you for having me on. I, I have a blast with this. And if you ask my wife, it's all I talk about anyway. So you gave me the, the opportunity to talk about what I love, which is real estate and notes and, and marketing and negotiation. I mean, I, one of the things that I, I decided early on is it's like the 10,000 hour rule is something that people say, if you do something for 10,000 hours, you're going to be great at it, whether it's, you know, jujitsu or banjo or real estate, you know, and uh, I don't know where I'm at in that 10,000 hour rule, but uh, I'd say I'm, I'm on the, the upper end of it, if not over, because I really enjoy this business. I, I love what it can do for people. And yeah, I mean, if you're interested in, in building a legacy, I think real estate's the way to go. Awesome. Well, thanks a lot for being on the show today. Enjoyed it, man. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Brad was an incredible guest and he gave us a lot to think about. He talked about a who moved my cheese moment. It's from the book, Who Moved My Cheese, which talks about a couple of mice and humans who are in a maze. If you haven't read it yet, go read it. The point of the story is things change and you need to be flexible and adapt quickly to reap the full benefits. He was sending out a crazy amount of direct mail, 70,000 pieces a month, but pivoted to another strategy when it wasn't producing the same results. Create great systems and have the sellers fill out a contact form online. 10x your marketing budget. It's well worth it. And owning notes is a great way to increase your passive cash flow with little to no money left in the deal. If you're interested in learning more about this strategy, you can contact Brad on his website, bradsmotherman.com, and check out his podcast on iTunes, The Investor Creator Podcast with Brad Smotherman. Hope you learned a lot. Thanks, and have a great day. This was another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star rating. It'll take less than a second, and it'll help a lot. You can contact me at seanpanrealty at gmail.com. That's S-E-A-N-P-A-N-R-E-A-L-T-Y at gmail.com. Thanks, and have a great day.